Uh, tonight, this sounds a bit weird because it's the first Sunday of the year, but for tonight is our last sermon in our series in Matthew in a little while. Uh, we're going to come back to Matthew in February and then uh, get to the resurrection of Jesus, God willing, on Easter Sunday, uh, rather fittingly. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, we're going to look at some Psalms over January. Uh, and tonight's sort of like a hinge between those two sermons uh, series because we're looking at Matthew, but then we're going to particularly go and look at that Psalm that was our first Bible reading a second ago. So that's what we're going to do. But now I'll pray for us before we get underway. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray for our brothers and sisters who are in isolation because they're close contacts and we especially pray for those who uh, have been diagnosed with COVID uh, and we pray that you will be keeping them safe and bringing them a speedy recovery. Uh, but we do thank you for modern technology and the way they can still be with us even in uh, a different style. But Father, we pray now that as we turn to your word that you will help us to listen to it carefully. Uh, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are soft to receive it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a certain age where children love to ask the question, why? Uh, you're probably, most of you are closer to that age than, uh, than I. But uh, when you're a parent, that question, but why? But why? But why? Becomes a, a bit like sort of Chinese water torture. Uh, where it's just drip, 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 and you're just sort of, why, why? And it, be it becomes exasperating after a while. Other people think it's cute when they're minding your children. When you have them 24-7, it's awful. Uh, and in fact, you sometimes see parents who get to that moment in the shops, uh, and you hear the exasperated parent. There's one line, you hear it, and it's, it just is. It just is. Just stop asking me. I don't have a reason. I don't know why. And you know that point that that mum or that dad has been through hundreds of questions before they've got to that point and broken. Uh, and I sort of imagine Jesus being at that point at the end of Matthew 22. So if you remember, we've been looking at this chapter for a few weeks now. Because the Sadducees, but mainly it's been the Pharisees, uh, they have been bombarding him with really silly questions. Just annoying questions. Not serious genuine questions not serious genuine inquiries but trick questions meant to sort of trap Jesus and catch him out and that's what we've been looking at for the last few Sundays but as we come to today's passage look with me uh, you get the impression Jesus has had enough at this point he doesn't lose his temper he doesn't snap at them what he does is he turns the table he actually asks them a trap question if you like it's designed to to trap them back uh, but it's also a question that's actually going to reveal the truth about Jesus for those who want to hear it. So come with me, verse 41. You do need your Bible because we're going to be looking at these two different passages. So if you haven't got a Bible, whack your hand up and someone at the back will get one to you. But come with me, Matthew 22, we're at verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. So before this, they've been sending individuals to Jesus to, to question him. He's got them all together, and now he asks them the questions. Like, hey, you've been asking me the questions. Let me ask you one now. And so verse 42, he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, this is not a difficult question. This is not a tricky question. They all knew about the Messiah. They knew their Old Testaments. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. It means the anointed one. And the Old Testament told them that this Messiah would be sent by God to save God's people. Uh, he would be the promised king. And everyone knew he would be descended from King David. 
So they all knew the answer to this question. He would be a son of David. The promise started in 2 Samuel 7. It'll come up on the screen. Thanks, Tom. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. This is God talking to David. And he says, when your time comes and you rest with your father, so after you've gone, David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 2 Samuel 7 is just one of those chapters you've got to know to understand your Bible. It's a key chapter. Uh, And in it, it talks about how this descendant of David, this one who's promised in that verse, will come and establish God's kingdom forever. So all the Pharisees know this. And so they answer Jesus straight away. Look there, it said, whose son is the Messiah? David's, they told him. But even as they answered Jesus, they would have been worried. You see, because they knew that people were saying that Jesus was that Messiah. Just a day or two earlier, as Jesus had been coming up into Jerusalem, people had yelled out, son of David, save us. So you can imagine, even as they answer the question, they're thinking, where is this going? Jesus has run rings around us with our questions. What's the trap here in this question? And Jesus doesn't disappoint. He says, look at verse 43, he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him, that's the Messiah, Lord? Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about in the Old Testament. He's talking about what David wrote in the Psalms. And do you notice, just this as an aside, do you notice how Jesus views the Old Testament? He views the Old Testament as both the word of man and the word of God. Do you see that? So he says, David said it, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But his point is, here's David talking in the Psalms, talking about the Messiah, but he doesn't say, my son, he says, my Lord. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110, our Old Testament reading from before, in verse 44, it says, the Lord, that is God, declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And just in case they missed it, Jesus explains it again at verse 45. He says, look, if David calls him Lord, how then can the Messiah be his son? Now, understand Jesus is not disputing that the Messiah had to be, humanly speaking, descended from David. In fact, Jesus makes a whole big point about the fact he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. It was all, the Christmas story we've just read over the last few weeks is all about that. But what he's doing is he's making the point that the Messiah is going to be so much more than that. He's not just going to be a, a better Solomon or a better Hezekiah or other descendants of David. The Messiah will sit at God the Father's right hand. Even King David will call this Messiah the Lord. This Messiah is not just going to be a human king. He's not even going to be the the best human king since David. He's going to be much more than that. Now, of course, because we know the end of the story, we know Jesus is getting them ready for the fact that he is that Messiah. And he's getting them ready for the fact that he's not just a son of David. He's not just a king. He is the son of God. He is the one who sits at the Father's right hand. But of course, they are determined not to believe anything about Jesus. So they can't answer him. What he's saying about the Messiah is true. They, can't, they don't have a response to it. But even so, look at verse 44. They say no one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. I think that's one of the saddest verses. Just such a really sad way to end the chapter. Because they can't answer him. They know what he's saying about the Messiah is true. And so they should have responded by asking another question. They should have said, teacher, are you that Messiah? They should have said, teacher, what should we do if you are that Messiah? Teacher, how can we worship you? How can we serve you? That's what they should have switched to asking. 
But they'd already decided Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They'd already decided they wanted him dead. And so at this point, defeated, they walk away. But you do wonder, at least I do, whether some of them might have just gone to the synagogue and pulled out the scroll that had that psalm that Jesus quoted just the first verse of. See, because in in the Bible, when Jesus or when anyone in the New Testament quotes the first verse of a psalm, they're assuming you know the rest of the psalm. They're assuming you're picking up not just what they say in that verse, but everything that's said in that psalm. So when Jesus said, you remember on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's thinking, go and read Psalm 22, because that's just the first verse, and you'll discover things about me. And it's the same way here. He's saying, go and read Psalm 110, and you will discover things about me. And you just wish they would do that, because if they read Psalm 110 with a willingness to believe, their eyes might just have been opened. Psalm 110, turn back there now, turn back in your Old Testaments to Psalm 110, and you really do want to have it open in front of you, as I said before. Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage quoted more than any other passage in the New Testament. So more than Isaiah 53, more than Psalm 2, more than Psalm 22, you know, those great passages. Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other psalm. And the reason is that it's the psalm that shows you that Jesus is the Messiah. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he loved this psalm. This is what he said about it. It's coming up on the screen. He says this, Psalm 110, is the high and chief psalm of our dear Lord Jesus Christ, in which his person and his resurrection, ascension and his whole kingdom are so clearly and powerfully set forth that nothing of a similar kind is to be found in all the writings of the Old Testament. That's a pretty big rap on this passage. That's how important this psalm is. And it's true. You see, this psalm doesn't just give Jesus a clever way to confound his enemies. It actually sets out who Jesus is and what he came to do. So let's look at it. Come with me. Psalm 110. Now, the first thing you notice there is it says it's a Davidic psalm. This is a little Bible reading lesson to start the year. Where those headings that are there in big caps where it says the priestly king, not part of your Bible. Okay, that's just the translators have put those headings in. So never, uh, never base what you think about a passage on what they say in those. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. But in the Psalms, where it has those little italics, they are part of your Bible. So that's actually telling you, God is telling you, this is a Psalm of David. This is David speaking. So that means this was written by David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And as we've seen in verse 1, David is writing about his Lord. So David is the king and he's talking to God, but he's saying there's someone else in the picture. My Lord, who's there with God, the Messiah. And so what do we learn about the Messiah? Well, we learn there's lots in it, but I'm only going to draw out three things because I don't want to go too long tonight. Three things we learn about the Messiah from Psalm 110. The first is that the Messiah is more than a human being. And this is verse 1. So look there. It says, This is the declaration of the Lord, that is God, to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see, for for people who know their Old Testament, you know that's not where a person sits. People don't dwell in the heavens with God the Father. No mere man sits at the right hand of the Father. No mere man has the most honoured place. So it's saying straight away, the Messiah is not just an earthly king. He is equal with God. He he sits in the heavens. He, He rules with God. Now, the Pharisees would have looked at Jesus and said, well, that's not you. 
Look at you. You're just a, a carpenter's son for, from Nazareth. You might be smarter than us, but you're not that guy. But that's where Jesus sat before he humbled himself. If you're here on Christmas Day, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, that great passage where it says, Jesus Christ existing in the form of God, in very nature God. You see, Jesus existed as God the Son before he came as a baby. But he humbled himself, took on flesh. But that is where he came from, seated at the right hand of the Father. And more importantly, that is where he is now. Because after he humbled himself, after he died for our sins, God raised him from the dead and now he is ascended and sitting at the Father's right hand. Look at how it puts it in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 up on the screen. It says, Jesus has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection from the dead. You see, Jesus now has ascended to the heavens. He sits in glory at his father's right hand. He is where he's meant to be. He's where David saw that he would be all those years ago, seated at the right hand of God. Second thing we learn about the Messiah, and this is the main thing in this psalm, is that the Messiah is a victorious and conquering king. And this is in verses 1 to 3, but also in verses 5 to 7. Just scan down the psalm again, look at it, and look at all the language of battle and defeat and all that sort of thing in this psalm. That's what it's all about. So look at verse 1. It says, God will make all his enemies his footstool. It's just a totally dismissive way of talking about anyone who opposes the Messiah. If you oppose the Messiah, he will end up putting his feet on you like you do on the, you know, the coffee table when your parents are not watching. You know, that sort of idea. When you're watching the television, that is what the Messiah will do to his enemies. Verse 2, it talks about his mighty scepter. That's the sign of rule. It's the sign of kingship. A king holds a scepter. And it says it will extend from Zion, that's Jerusalem, out over the world. And the picture is actually really confronting when you get to verses 5 and 6. Look there. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. So what it is, is it's a picture of total victory where opposition is not tolerated. It's, it's a picture where, where no one will stand who opposes God's Messiah. Now, how is Jesus that conquering king? So if you think about it, this doesn't seem to describe Jesus when he came the first time, does it? He came not as a conquering king, but in humility. He didn't kill his opposition, they killed him. So he humbled himself even to the point of death. Because we know that in his death and in his resurrection, he was actually winning the great victory. He was dying in our place to take the punishment we deserve. He was defeating sin, he was defeating the devil, and most of all, he was defeating the greatest enemy of all, which is death. And that's why the New Testament takes this psalm, Psalm 110, and says it's talking about Jesus' victory over sin, his victory over death. Look at how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. It'll come up on the screen. It says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in his death and resurrection, Jesus has won the great victory. He's done the victory over sin and death, which we should praise God for. 
But verses 5 and 6 are not just metaphorical. They're not just talking about that spiritual victory. There is a time coming when we will see verses 5 and 6 fulfilled literally. See, yes, Jesus' first coming was in humility to win salvation for all who turn and trust in him. But when Jesus returns, it will be in glory. And when he returns, he will come to judge. And when he returns, he will not tolerate opposition. And on that day, verses 5 and 6 of our psalm, look there again, that is what will happen to those who have rejected God and rejected his Messiah. That is what will happen to those who have rejected God and rejected his son. Revelation chapter 19 talks about that day symbolically. And I think John, who wrote the vision, had Psalm 110 in mind as he talked about it. This is the day of Christ's return. Look at how it describes it. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, that is who David saw seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the picture of Jesus when he returns, not to save, he did that the first time, but when he returns to judge. The uh, Apostle Paul talks about it even more literally, not with all that figurative language, in Acts chapter 17. Look at this. He says, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed, that is Jesus. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, that day that the Apostle Paul is preaching about there in Acts 17, that is the day that Psalm 110 is pointing forward to. The day when Jesus comes in glory, where everyone will see him for who he is, and it will be a wonderful day for those who know Jesus. It will be a wonderful day for those who love Jesus. But for others, it will be an awful day. Because it will be the day where we receive what we deserve for how we have lived. And the right response now is to repent. Like the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, repent, turn and trust in God's salvation in Christ. Turn and trust in God's Messiah. You see, God's Messiah, Jesus, is not to be trifled with. He's not to be taken for granted. He is merciful and kind, but ultimately, he is fearful. He will judge with righteousness. And that is the main theme of Psalm 110. It is about the glory and the power of the Messiah. But there's also, just as I close, a little glimpse of the gentleness and mercy of the Messiah in our psalm. So my third heading, the Messiah is a priest as well as a king. Do you notice that enigmatic verse, verse 4, in the middle of the psalm? Look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. Forever you are a priest like Melchizedek. 
What's that talking about? Melchizedek is one of the more uh, exotic characters of the Bible, one of the less well-known. Uh, but you've got to understand, in the Old Testament, the king was meant to lead God's people under God, but the priests were there to introduce God's people to God. You see, the priest was to help people come to know God. The priest was the mediator. They stood between God and man and made it possible for God to know man. And the main way they did that was by offering sacrifices to pay the price for the sins of humanity. But just like most of the kings in the Old Testament did a pretty horrible job, well, so did most of the priests. And how could they offer sacrifices for other people when they were sinners themselves? Well, Psalm 110 is saying the Messiah will be the priest you really need. He won't be like those old Levite priests, which were the priests of the Old Testament. He'll be a new type of priest like Melchizedek. So as I say, Melchizedek is one of the strangest characters in the Bible. He's way back in Genesis 14. You can go and read about him there later this week if you want. And what he's famous for is no one knows anything about him. That's what he's famous for. He's famous for the fact that he just appears out of nowhere. He's just the priest of Salem, which is Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. And when Abraham came, this priest appears, Melchizedek, and made sacrifices for him and blessed him. But then he disappears and no one knows where he goes. Now, as I say, we haven't got time to go and look at the story further, but the point Psalm 110 is making is the Messiah will be a priest like that. One who just comes out of nowhere and is the true priest. He's not going to be like one of the priests who are just a priest because their dad was a priest like all the other priests of the Old Testament, he won't be one of those with all their failures. He will be a different priest, a better priest. And we know, of course, that is Jesus. The book of Hebrews calls Jesus our great high priest because he opens up the way to God like no human priest ever could because all they could do was sacrifice a lamb or sacrifice a goat. Jesus can stand between us and God because he is both God and man and he has made the sacrifice that pays for all sin for all time, which is the sacrifice of himself. He's paid for our sins once and for all through his death on a cross. That is our Messiah, the King and the Priest. Well, that's Psalm 110. And I just wish those Pharisees went away and read it that day because their story might have ended differently. They might have recognised that is who they were arguing with and they might have fallen on their knees and worshipped him. But for us today, what do we take away from this psalm? I just want you to leave with two messages as we finish. The big point I want us to take away is this. Remember who your Messiah is. Remember who Jesus is. First of all, remember that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is not to be trifled with. Jesus is not to be taken for granted. Jesus is to be worshipped. Jesus is to be honoured. Jesus is to be obeyed. His word is to be listened to. Jesus is our Lord, just like he was David's Lord. We must not presume on Jesus' grace. Jesus is to be feared. I think we have lost some of this in the modern church. I think we treat Jesus more like a friend. Jesus is to be feared. He is the Lord. He is the one who will come in righteousness to judge. That's the picture in Psalm 110. As we enter 2022, maybe a good New Year's resolution might be to work at fearing the Lord. 
But also remember, Jesus is our Saviour. That same Lord who will judge the world is also our priest. The priest who gave his own life to pay for our sin. Psalm 110 reminds us you need to know both of those things to know Jesus. Some Christians, it seems to me, know that Jesus is the Saviour, but they forget that he's the Lord. They don't listen to his word. They don't tremble at his voice. Other Christians know that Jesus is the Lord, but they forget that he's the Saviour, and so they live in fear, forgetting that he's paid the price for their sin. The true Jesus is both. And that's the Jesus I want us to know. That is the Jesus I want us to worship. So as we finish this year, let's remember who Jesus is. He is your Lord and he is your Saviour because he is God's wonderful Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way this psalm written a thousand years before Jesus spoke so clearly about him and found its fulfilment in him. And we thank you that Jesus is your true Messiah sent to be both our Lord and our Saviour. Help us to have that true and right picture of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.